Let's go ahead and make our way in the Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Let's read chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear for what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. As we continue our look at Revelation on Wednesday evenings, we are in a section where John is writing on behalf of Jesus to seven different churches that are being addressed for the circumstances in which they find themselves. As we look at the second of the seven churches, the church of Smyrna, we now come to a church that is one out of the seven that is going to be encouraged by what they are about to receive from the Lord. Smyrna was a beautiful city there in Asia Minor. It is a city there still to this day, but you know it as Isma. It is in Turkey. And in the book of Revelation at that time, it was one of the crown cities of the Roman Empire. It was absolutely gorgeous. And yet in the midst of this beauty was this persecution of this small group of people who were known to be Christians. And that persecution was becoming very, very, very severe to the point that most of them are now being arrested and put into prison. But this was only the first step. Their particular experience was not going to be um, found in release, but in death. Their personal persecution was going to result in the forsaking of their own particular life. Persecution is a reality that the Bible fully depicts for us. It isn't a reality in our lives today as American believers because we don't face such circumstances. Though, I will tell you, I believe American Christians are waking up to the reality of persecution because almost every evening on the news you hear of a group that is terrorizing Islamic states uh, called the Islamic State ISIS, and they are moving on behalf of the Imad that they want to bring into power, they want to bring into, uh, con- uh, into ultimate control, and in the wake of their existence, they are leaving a trail of persecution and bloodshed, where men, women, and children are dying simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. This is not a new reality. It has been going on for 2,000 years. 
In 2011, there was an estimate that was given that every five minutes a Christian dies for their faith. In the 20th century alone, 45 million Christians died for their faith in Jesus Christ. That's something we can't even fathom here in this nation. If one were to become a Christian in the city of Smyrna and to automatically to become part of that church through that Christian conversion, it would mean the forsaking of their lives, meaning there was no ambiguity in what it was going to cost to follow Jesus Christ at that time. They knew exactly what was going to transpire. Now you would think that that would be a detriment to the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that wasn't the case. Men and women still uh, came to saving faith in Jesus Christ even after this period of time that is being addressed here specifically in our text. And the church continued to grow even under such difficult circumstances. What does that say to you? What does that tell you? It is interesting to me that these Christians knew what it was going to cost the moment they became a Christian and identified themselves with fellow believers in Jesus Christ. They knew there wasn't any ambiguity that it was going to result in their personal persecution. Would you have still come to saving faith in Jesus Christ knowing that that was going to be the cost of your following Christ? Think about that for a moment. Would you still openly proclaim Christ as boldly as you do today under the protections and the laws and the rights that we have in this nation, would you be hindered by the reality of the persecution that you are soon going to be facing, the separation from your family, the loss of your possessions? These individuals lost their personal wealth due to the fact that they became a Christian. It was seized from them. And that is why Jesus speaks of their poverty here in our text, simply because they came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Please consider all of this as we begin to look at this passage. Because as we read these seven addresses, we are going to discover that man sees the church one way, those who are in it, those who are outside of it, and God often sees it completely differently from his perspective. And Jesus is sharing with them a reality. On the surface, they were persecuted, they were imprisoned, they were about to die for their faith in Jesus Christ as the escalation was, um, the persecution was about to escalate. And yet, Jesus says, you are rich. When we come to the church of Laodicea, the outward appearance would state they're rich, they are wealthy, they have all that they need, when in actuality, they were poor in the sight of God. How do you know that a church is healthy or not? What standards do you use to know if a church is healthy or not? Many American Christians have never asked themselves that question. 
Today, the overwhelming answers are usually confined to the different programs in which that church is offering. Does it fit all of the needs that my family has? Are the messages moving emotionally? Are they entertaining? Uh, Do they captivate my attention or do I fall asleep during them? But when it comes to doctrinal integrity, often those things are not articulated and specified as qualities that one would look for in a healthy church, but they're fundamental. Also, the attitude and the culture of the believer within, within that church must be evaluated. Are they loving one another as Christ loved the church? Are they generous towards one another? Are they compassionate towards one another? Is there charitable actions taking place in and through their lives? Can it be determined that way? Because that's the true fruit of the church, is the members of the church and how they display their Christian faith. So it's very, very important that you understand how you are evaluating if you are part of a healthy church or not. Just because there's a certain name on the placard outside as you enter into the parking lot of the church doesn't necessarily mean the church is healthy. The size of the church doesn't necessarily mean that it is a good church or a bad church. And these are all aesthetics that we take into consideration and look at to determine and to judge if this church is healthy or not that I am attending. But one of the things we will really learn if we look at these addresses closely is that Christ's perspective on the church is often the opposite of those within it and those who are looking at it from the outside. So I bring you to Smyrna. In fact, let's take a trip there together if this will work, and it does not, if you will please. This is the ruins of Smyrna today. And in Smyrna, you can still see these ruins. Again, it is not called Smyrna anymore. It's Izmar, Turkey. It is a thriving city. And around the ruins behind me that you are seeing There is a thriving city in the next slide. This is what it looks like today. A beautiful harbor city. 2,000 years ago, within this city was a church that was being persecuted, that is on the brink of forfeiting their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ, And as Jesus writes to this church, he has nothing negative to say about them. He admonishes them. He encourages them. He uh, he shares with them what they need at that moment in time. And one of the things that we will learn about this church in verse 10, those first three words, do not fear, are in a manner specifying that they were already afraid They were fearful of what was happening to them. I think often when we read about these individuals who have been martyred for the Christian faith, we sometimes want to believe that they were superhuman in their endeavors to withstand the persecution in which they were facing and their death that that they were heading for. But in this particular case, we find that even in one of the most beautiful cities of the Roman Empire, such a thing can take place. 
just 35 miles north of Ephesus. Undoubtedly, the Christian faith came there through Paul's travels. I have no doubt that John at one time had passed through uh, this area, encouraging the work that was already there. In fact, they will later be known for one who was a follower of John himself. His name was Polycarp, and we'll talk about him at the end of our message this evening. But Smyrna, amongst those ruins, Brian, if you'll go back to those ruins, amongst these ruins there were those who worshipped Christ and were being persecuted for it. Let's look at our text together. As Jesus begins with each of his addresses to the churches, he introduces himself in a very specific way. In verse 8, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, The word angel means messenger. Some believe that it's an actual angel. Some believe it's referring to the pastor or the overseer of that church. He asks them, he says, write to them, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Within the address, the manner in which Jesus introduces himself to this church we can already discover what their primary need was, and that was the assurance of life. He uses a term first and last that was used in the Old Testament of God the Father himself. In Isaiah 41.4, Isaiah writes, Who has performed and done all of this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. Or Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no other God. And then he attaches that eternal statement concerning his uh, existence with the caveat that he was once dead and rose again. Meaning that life is possible through him. That he is the giver of life. That death could not hold him. And as a result, this church needed to hear that reality that Jesus Christ was the resurrection and the life. Why? because they were about to forfeit theirs. They needed the assurance of eternal life. Again, these men, these women, willingly, willingly followed Christ, knowing that they were going to subject themselves to terrible, horrific persecution. And in verse 9, he moves to the approval after addressing them. Because there is no accusation. And in the approval, he says, I know your tribulations. I know your suffering. I know what you're going through. I know what you're experiencing. I am no stranger to suffering. He is identifying himself with them. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Not only were they experiencing physical suffering, but they also had nothing to their name. 
Now, I substantiated that it was a common practice of the Roman Empire to strip an individual of all of their personal wealth when they decided to follow a deity that was not recognized by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, when they went into different areas, different nations, one of the ways they controlled the people of those nations was evaluating the relationship between the people and their deities. Some of the worst people that they had to deal with were people who had no deities or were fanatical about their deities. When the Roman Empire went into Israel and situated themselves there as an occupier, they formally recognized Judaism as a religion that was permitted to be practiced by the Roman, uh, by the citizens of Israel that were under Roman government. Christianity, on the other hand, was never approved. And as a result, we are going to find that these who have been arrested and incarcerated for their faith in Christianity also had all of their possessions stripped from them. They lost all their personal wealth. I don't know about you, but what more of an illustration do you need of the perfect example of what it means to be a Christian and the cost of following Jesus Christ? Right? Because in actuality, the moment we become a Christian, we are laying our lives down before the Lord God of the universe saying, not my will, but your will be done. I'm now a living sacrifice. We are forfeiting our lives. That's exactly what they were doing. They knew that their acceptance of Christ was going to cause them to forfeit their lives. They had a a visual illustration. When we become Christians, we are not masters of our own things, but we are merely stewards, right? All that we have belongs to God. Again, they knew that once they came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, the likelihood of their personal property being taken from them was very probable and they would forsake everything for the purposes of Jesus Christ. I ask the question again. If you were to approach someone and tell them that your faith in Jesus Christ will secure you for all eternity, however, though, you're going to lose your life and lose all of your possessions, how many would be willing to go that route? They wouldn't. Today in America, to draw people to church, churches have come up with some of the most unusual manners of attracting people to church. Just recently, some of the members of our church received in the mail a Starbucks gift card if they would come and visit a particular church. They could redeem a card that they received in the mail and they would be given a 5 or $10 gift card for Starbucks if they would come and visit the church. Uh, That's why our attendance has been fluctuating lately. Everybody's going to get their cards and they're coming back. Um, But can you believe that? You know, really, I'm going to bring Christ to the point of a gift card. No way. I'm not going to do it. Call it my pride, if you will, but I'm not going to do it. He's the Lord and Lord, King of Kings. He needs to be exalted amongst all others. You know, it is Him and Him alone 
I'm not a gift card. You can keep it, pal. No way. We have received brochures in this church. We actually get brochures to the church for other churches asking us to come to their church. <laughs> and I've, I've seen this, and I read it one Sunday, that they claim to have the most comfortable chairs of any church in the area. We've seen that one. Now think about this. These people were confronted with the reality of losing everything and their lives to follow Jesus Christ, and we're trying to attract people with comfy chairs and gift cards. Little bit of a disparity there between the two, isn't there? And the people here in Smyrna were willing to do just that, lose everything and their lives. He says, I know your poverty, but in actuality, that's what he's saying, you are rich. You may not look it. You may not feel it, but you are. Christ was looking at them with an eternal perspective. They were looking at themselves with a temporal perspective. Laodicea, just the opposite. They were looking at themselves with a temporal perspective. Christ was looking at an eternal perspective. Laodiceans thought they had everything. They were wealthy and were in need of nothing. But in actuality, they were poverty-stricken before the Lord. This church, you have nothing but you're rich in me. You are rich in me. And then he goes on, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but of the synagogue of Satan. I agree with those who say that what was happening is a, there was a move of persecution and it was going through the five stages of the development of persecution and they were in a stage right now where it was slanderous and they were being arrested and their property was being seized from them, and then it was going to escalate to their actual death. They were being slandered. That slandering had undoubtedly the tone within it stating that the Jewish people brought this sect of Christians to the attention of the Roman governors and stated they are not one of the prescribed, permitted religions that you allow, and therefore it must be stopped. The Jewish leaders undoubtedly thought that they were serving the purposes of the God by stamping out this new move that called Christ the Messiah, um, uh, called Jesus the Messiah, and that they were working on God's behalf. They were being slandered by um, those who should have known that Christ was their Savior. And Christ has said, I'm fully aware of what these Jewish people are doing to you, but they are not for me. They are of the synagogue of Satan. Now that's a very interesting term. It's used here and it's also used in the book uh, to the church in Philadelphia. Twice it's used. And there's a lot of speculation to what this actually means, but I think that it is clarified very easily for us when we understand the language the Greek language. In Numbers chapter 16, verse 3, in our English translations of the Bible, it reads as this. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, this is speaking of the, of, of the uprising uh, against Moses and Aaron, you have gone too far for I and all in the congregation are holy. 
and every one of them, and the Lord is among them, why then do you exalt yourself above, and then there's this phrase at the end, the assembly of the Lord. In the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament, that is the Old Testament in the Greek language, the phrase here, assembly of the Lord, is the opposite of the synagogue of Satan, meaning it's the same phrase, it's just one for Satan, one for the Lord. They should have been acting on God's behalf, but they were not. Because of their rejection of Christ, they no longer were serving his purposes and therefore serving the purposes of the devil. They were resisting what God was doing. They were at one time working on God's behalf, but now they are no longer, and they are dragging and bringing these people out before the Roman prosecutors and governors to allow them to be arrested and stripped from their property. Why do I say this? The Jewish people would have been much more in tune to what was happening with these Christians than the Roman government would have been. Rome was so vast in an empire that they had become so accustomed to so many different gods, so many different people, that most believe that the Roman emperors, uh, or I'm sorry, but the Roman Empire and those who were uh, in the enforcement of the laws of the Roman Empire, they didn't really know which religions were permitted and which ones were not because they saw it all the time. They were in different areas. You know, you walked across different areas and different cities. You have different gods. You had different people worshiping. And so it became a norm. They knew some were uh, prescribed. Others were not. But they didn't really pay a whole lot of attention. The only time that the Roman Empire really became um, actively involved in subduing these non-permitted sects of faiths is when the followers of those faiths were unwilling to bow to Caesar as Lord and deity. Now, when the Jews first brought this to the Roman emperor's, a uh, Roman uh, governor's uh, uh, attention, it was because the Jews recognized that these individuals were now following this one called Jesus, whom the religious leaders in Jerusalem had rejected. They identified and said, okay, yeah, these are Christians. It wasn't until those same Christians stood up and would not submit to Caesar as a deity that Rome then became very interested in these individuals. And so it appears, and I agree with those who say this, that it was the Jews who started bringing it to their attention. They weren't really watching for it. It really wasn't any of their concern. And probably at this time it was very small compared to all the vastness. They had temples and and pagan statues that were 30 feet tall and just incredible things. And you're talking about a handful of people, you know, uh, meeting down by a river or whatever it may be at different places. It, It wasn't on their radar until the Jewish people said, oh, no, 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 they're following Jesus. And that's why it is addressed in the manner that it is. Do not fear. Why? Because they were afraid. We must be aware of the progression of persecution. It has been thoroughly documented 
that in the study of persecution, there is a progression that seems to naturally occur from zero to ten, ten being the taking of one's life under the guise of that persecution, and zero meaning a a tolerating uh, of it to the point of indifference or uh, exclusion. I want to read to you the steps these five steps of persecution that have been recognized not only in religious circles, the Catholic Church has verified this, Protestant Christians have verified this progression, and so is the secular community. It is a progression that is used by many to govern the uh, intensity of the persecution of a people group and to decide when to intervene or interact. Let me read this to you. You might find this extremely interesting. The first stage of this persecution begins with the stereotyping of the targeted group. The beginning of persecution starts with the stereotyping of the targeted group. To stereotype means to repeat without variation, to take a quality or an observation of a limited number and generalize it to describe the whole group. It involves a simplified and standardized conception or view of a group based on the observation of a limited sample size. So, they see an individual who acts a certain way, who claims Christianity, and by the example of that one individual, they vilify all Christians to be like that one person. Okay? That's how it all begins. That has already happened here in the United States of America. Can anybody tell me what was one of the most effective manners that the world stereotyped Christians to look like and to be like? And they, and the world did it in one person who wasn't even a living individual, but an animated character. Can anybody think of an place or a TV show, let me give it to there, where a Christian was depicted in a very specific way that now has become the general stereotype? Ned Flanders of The Simpsons is absolutely correct. Think of how many people that you will come across that will equate you as a Christian to be like Ned Flanders. That's the process of stereotyping. Because the persecuting group doesn't want the followers of them to look at us as individuals. They want, us to, look, they want to look at us as an entire group. And we're all guilty. Okay? And we're all guilty. But then it progresses. The second stage of persecution is the vilifying of that targeted group for alleged crimes or misconducts. As the stereotyping grew in intensity, Christians who did not toe the line in the cultural revolution were described as, listen to these words, close-minded, harmful to human dignity and freedom, intolerant, hateful, bigoted, unfair, homophobic, reactionary, and just plain plain mean-spirited and basically bad people. That's the way that many view Christians today. 
They stereotyped us, then they vilified us, and then they moved us to a place of marginalization, the third phase of persecution. Marginalizing the target group's role in society, having established the false premise that the church and the faith are very bad and even harmful to human dignity and freedom, the critics uh, processed uh, or proceeded, excuse me, uh, in the next stage to re- uh, relegate the role of the church to a margin of society, meaning that the church can't play a role in society. Now, can anybody tell me where the world has done an exceptional job at eliminating the church's influence within the culture? Where? The schools. Absolutely. The schools would have to be number one. But that the very next one underneath that, can anybody tell me what that soon is going to be? Voting. They don't want our our involvement in voting any longer. So they're going to marginalize it. They're going to make it more difficult. They're examining that polling places should not be held in churches any longer. They want to alleviate these things. They want to put it in a place where the church is then excluded from these. Now, this is all a progression of persecution. Now, I think what may be hitting you guys is that you've seen this in your own nation, right? Now, the fourth stage is, I think, where we are currently at now and will progress to in the near future, criminalizing the target's group or its works. The criminalization. The criminalization. They're going to make laws that would prohibit our involvement even further. We don't know what that looks like yet, but we see that there are certain things that are being criminalized, correct? How about a photographer who is a Christian who doesn't want to participate in a gay or lesbian wedding? They've already been sued. And these cases are already being fought between uh, the Supreme Court, etc., How about Hobby Lobby? We just went through this, where the court favored on their side, and I think they made the right decision, but conscience is trying to be controlled through legislation, and that's what's happening now, guys. But that's the fourth stage. The fifth stage is the persecuting the targeted group outright And if current trends continues, Christians, especially religious leaders, may not be far from facing heavy fines or incarcerations. Okay? These are five steps that individuals look at to judge and to determine how far the persecuted individual has uh, experienced in the way of persecution. It's scary to me to think that we are applying this to us here in the United States of America. That's hard to believe. This is why we need to ask ourselves, what role should we play? Do we just be silent and hide, or do we use whatever freedoms that we currently have to try to, you know, to push back the progression of society or uh, of persecution and to say, no, we as Christians are a viable part of the fabric of the United States of America and must be considered. There are some battles that we have lost already, but there are others that are still yet need to be fought. 
Those are all considerations that we as individuals need to pray about personally and ask ourselves how we are to be involved. Now notice, what stage of the persecution were we currently at in Smyrna? They were arrested, why? Because it was criminalized that their activities were not allowed by the law. Personal property was taken and removed from them. So now we see the escalation. Do not be afraid or fear because they were fearful. They were afraid. What you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Being thrown into prison is not the same as it is in this country. What is the purpose? <laughs> what is the so-called purpose of prison in the United States of America? What what's supposed to happen in prison? You're supposed to be what? Rehabilitated. That's right. How's that working out for us? We have a lot of repeat offenders, don't we? Prison at that time was different. You were already guilty. And it was just a matter of you sitting in prison waiting sentence. And sentencing wasn't um, laid out necessarily in an orderly fashion. It could be very subjective to the mood of the governor at that time. He had a lot of leeway. He had a lot of room. He could prescribe punishment accordingly and so forth. Prison was meant to be a time of torment, as you just sat there and waited for your fate, not knowing what it was going to be. People went stark raving mad in prison because they were tormented day and night. Anxiety, worry, fear would grip the person's heart because they didn't know what was going to happen. The means of execution, the torture that could lay ahead of them, such as the cross such as the, you know, scourging post would keep them up at night. It wouldn't be uncommon for prisoners not to sleep for weeks on end because they were just so riddled with fear. Jesus is speaking to those people. Their lives hang in the balance. He just told them, don't be afraid for what you're about to suffer. It's coming. Think about that for a moment. But it's going to be short-lived. Some of you, the devil is about to throw into prison. It's going to be difficult. For ten days you will have tribulation. The phrase ten days has been, oh, so much conjecture and speculation has been used to identify the meaning of ten days. But again, in literary form, it simply means a short period of time. We see it in Genesis. We see it in other literature that is used at that time. It is just a phrase to simply uh, mean a short period of time. Some have said this represents uh, the ten emperors that were going to uh, exist from this point forward to the point where Christianity would be made the state religion in Rome. Some say that 10 days, if you multiply out the number of hours, you come up with a certain number, and that was to indicate how many uh, years that they were going to experience 
persecution here in Smyrna. None of these are factual. None of them are accurate. But if you look at the literary understanding of this, you'll understand that it simply means a short period of time, meaning that they're not going to have to wait long. Now, what we have just discussed about the prison incarceration, not waiting long would be what? Merciful. Merciful. You're not going to be in there a long time wondering what's about to happen. It's going to be a short period of time. Do not be afraid. He uses a word here in verse 10 also that you may be tested. The word there is in the Greek is also the word that is used for tempted. It is the same Greek word that is used when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It means you're going to be pushed to the brink. This is going to truly challenge you to the core. But I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to encourage you. It won't be long. And then he goes on to say, be faithful. And what does he say? Faithful to what? It's going to escalate. Be faithful unto death. How many of you, when you pray, desire God to answer your prayers? All of us do. Undoubtedly, these believers in Jesus Christ were praying and they received this letter and God answered their prayer. But was it the way they wanted? I don't think so. They heard of the stories of Peter being delivered, right? He was arrested and he was delivered out of jail by an angel. They heard of John being boiled and it didn't work. So they had to send him to Patmos. So it was kind of like a day spa. He got to soak in oil and then went out to the island. You know, not for them. No, their Christian life would be exercised and it would be lived in a demonstration of Christ's suffering. And in that moment of suffering, they would be able to show Christ to those who do not know the Lord. I fervently believe that what softened the hearts of many was not only the charitable acts in which Christians did, which were huge. Remember when we read in Acts chapter 2, they looked upon the Christian church with favor. But when you read the accounts of persecution and you see the attitude in the heart of those who were exercising, you know, or exercising the sentence of death upon these Christians, dragging them out amongst crowds or into the middle of the arenas to be slaughtered by lions for the entertainment of the crowd. When a Christian was brought into the Colosseum, the crowd would start to yell, death to the atheist, death to the atheist. Because that individual, this is when Rome then became passionate about persecuting Christians. This happened sometime later after this period that we're reading about currently. When Christians refused to bow to their knee to Caesar and to worship him as a deity, the Roman people called these Christians atheists. And we're going to read about one named Polycarp who was brought into that arena. 
And he looked at them and he said, these are the atheists. Persecution was a reality. Suffering was a reality. When you look at Jesus Christ, often we look and remember him as the soft, gentle servant that is depicted within the Gospels. But a believer who is about to face death would undoubtedly cling to those portions of the gospel where they saw their Lord suffering, where they saw him being scourged and tried and crucified and rising on the third day. That's what they cling to at those moments because that was a reality to them. We like the notion here in our nation as Christ our servant. I have a need, I go to God, He fulfills my need. But I often notice when I gaze at Facebook, when people get difficult news from their doctors and then have to face the reality of their own personal mortality, then all of a sudden they look at God in a different way. The one who is able to give life. It is amazing to me that we here in the United States of America, I would say by far the number one often most requested prayer request is a prayer to see someone through a medical difficulty. We will always pray for a medical difficulty. Jesus cares about medical difficulties. But often this is the greatest trial that we face as Christians, isn't it? It's a medical difficulty. I bring that to your attention here because of these words. I don't believe that we're just meant to learn this. I think God wants us to feel this. Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever been really afraid? I'm not talking about just startled. I'm not talking about subjecting yourself to a horror movie and you were afraid at that moment. I'm talking about really afraid, really fearful. Maybe your life hung in the balance because a a uh, diagnosis was given of a terminal illness. Really afraid. That's what we're dealing with here. And Jesus speaks to them, do not fear. Do not be afraid. His words are what they hung on. I mean, this was, this was more precious than anything that they could have had. They could have been delivered. They could have been spared this suffering. But in the midst of this, God did a great work throw you into prison for 10 days you will have tribulation be faithful unto death and i will give you the crown of life the city was known as one of the crown jewels of the area it was known there was a crown in the center of the city that was often admired by those who traveled through the city. It was a seaport. It was one of the attractions of the city. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you the crown of life. I'm going to give you eternal life. Though you're going to be tempted to deny me, stay faithful to the end, and I will give you the crown of life. That's what he is saying here. It's an incredible admonishment. I like what James said when he wrote, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This crown was precious to them. Again, what did they need to know? The reassurance of life. Folks, for you and I who are Christians and following Christ, this world is the worst that it's ever going to get. This is the worst. It's only going to get better. Sometimes we lose that perspective. For those who aren't in Christ, this world is the best it's ever going to be for them. It's only going to get worse. That is the vantage point that I think we should view things by, the perspective that we should have. A portion of Scripture scripture like this should be taken slowly, carefully, methodically considered by you and I who do not suffer persecution to bring us back to true reality. Because what we have in the United States of America, we may consider reality, but most people in our world today don't have a fraction of what we have here in this country. We don't, they don't have it. They won't even know what it is like. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's something for all of us to consider this evening. The one who conquers or overcomes or is faithful to the end will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is the reality of the one that is, who dies apart from Christ to realize that they would stand at a place of judgment where God will judge them for what they have done and they have no Savior to save them and they will depart from the presence of God and separated for all eternity in hell. That is the second death, the lake of fire for all eternity. I like what one wrote when he said this. It costs to be a dedicated Christian in some places more than others. As end times pressures increase, persecution will also increase and God's people need to be ready. The world may call us poor Christians, but in God's sight, we are rich. Listen to what Peter said. In his first letter, beloved, do not be surprised at the ver- that the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What words for us to remember 
this evening. Four verses, four verses contain such richness. I did not want to gloss over these. I wanted us not only to learn, but to feel and to understand that these Christians were afraid. They've lost everything. They had nothing. They were suffering simply because they were Christians. And now some were yet still yet to die. Sometime later, a man named Polycarp, if you further it to the third slide, Brian, a follower of John, the Apostle John himself, served God as the bishop of Smyrna, and finally Rome came against him. He was dragged into the middle of a Colosseum And he was to be burned at the stake for his faith in Jesus Christ. He was given an opportunity to recant Christ and to pledge his allegiance to Caesar and refused to do so. He then went to the stake and stood there and he didn't even need to be bound. He stood there willingly. But as the fire began to rage, it did not touch him, historians say. And when they saw that Polycarp had not died from the flames, a Roman soldier stabbed him with a spear. And it was said that his blood gushed forward and actually extinguished the flame itself. But Polycarp was given the opportunity to recant and decided not to. And he was asked very clearly that if you would simply pledge your allegiance and swear by Caesar, we will allow you to go free. This is what Polycarp said in reply. For 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And he went to his death. Persecution is a reality. It continues today. We, are, we should be shocked and disturbed by it. It's an atrocity. But it is also a reality of the Christian faith. But do not fear. Be faithful even unto death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church at Smyrna.